Hi, this is Jim. And this is Max. Check out our podcast, The Step Over, Liberty Ballers Podcast Network, for all of your Sixers' needs. Player analysis, game breakdowns, who would look coolest in a headband, and more. Subscribe to Liberty Ballers Podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and check out The Step Over, a podcast about Sixers basketball. Mostly. Michael Kist, Benjamin Solak. It's the Kist and Solak Show, presented by SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. You are flying high on the Kist and Solak Show. This is episode 19, brought to you by the fine folks at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. Follow me on Twitter at MichaelKistNFL. As always, joined by the best jogon co-host in the game, Mr. Eight Year Streak Without a Bad Day. He is Benjamin Solak. Follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Solak. That's S-O-L-A-K. Ben, how you doing, brother? Man. Every day is a good day to be alive, Mike. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you. As always, dude, I'm excited about it. It was very funny to see kind of the the national analysts and a lot of the all 22 X's and O's sort of guys get into the Eagles film kind of a little bit after we did and be like, wow, what is this? And we had to be like, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, this honey jar is loaded full of content here on the on the all 22 for the Eagles. And yeah, like you said, I, I mean, we'll talk about it too. guys like Ted Wynn from the the athletic and geez, man, just there's so many frustrating things that we saw on tape that we've been talking about for weeks come out and meet national media to uh, what the opposite of praise. What would that be the scorn to, to scorn slander the national media? Yeah, disparage. Bemoan. Ben, so we have some house cleaning to do. Thank you. We have some house cleaning to do before we move on to the all 22 film review of the Eagles 26-23 overtime stunner lost to the Tennessee Titans on the road. Before we get to that film review, we have to talk about some roster moves, some sexy, sexy roster moves that are going to make a huge difference for us. It's going to change our fortunes. Bruce Hector has been cut defensive tackle. And then we called up defensive tackle Trayvon Hester, Ben from the practice squad, if I'm not mistaken. And if uh-huh. I'm not mistaken, he's from Toledo. That's about as much as I know about him. Do you know anything more? Yeah, no. So I watched Hester because I was able to, to uh, like, you know, visit that Toledo program that year. And that was the year they had Kareem Hunt who came out. And then they also had uh, Michael Roberts, the giant tight end. Uh, he was like six seven or something like that, and he went with to the, the Lions, Lions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's massive. Uh, and Hester is also there, and he was the other like kind of maybe draftable dude. Pretty sure they also had a humongous offensive tackle who was undrafted. I don't know where he went, but anyway, that 2017 class for Toledo had you know more names than the average Toledo class, if you will. Uh, Hester's a big boy. He's six two, three hundred pounds, and he's real yoked up on the top. Uh, he's not a- as thick as you'd like for him to be in the bottom half, but he's a real big boy up top. Uh, and he's got some power, you know what I mean? Like um, Bruce Hector was a lot more squattier of a build, uh, but both of them are going to kind of do the same thing for you, where they just want, you know, you just want them to to hold down interior gaps and to eat up some space is kind of the primary uh, responsibility you're going to give them. Now, Hester was originally drafted in the seventh round by the Raiders, and he did make uh, a splash play or two for the Raiders. He kind of ended up just falling into some playing time. Yeah, you know, he had a good camp or whatever, uh, but there were injuries and the Raiders defensive line roster has been weak for a while. 
kind of with the uh, with the change there, you know, the Raiders this season ended up drafting P.J. Hall out of Sam Houston State and then Maurice Hurst out of Michigan. Uh, and those are two penetrating, smaller, squadier types, you know, very uh, very thick butts, very thick thighs. You know, the scouting, the scouts like to get into this. Uh, and then they got a lot of power there, and then they're really explosive off the ball. And Hester's just not that built. He's just he's got a lot of upper body strength to him. Yeah, he hits he hits uh, the streets. Eagles put him on the practice squad. I doubt he does any more than Bruce Hector does. But you know, Eagles are going to check it out. Maybe that's the uh, it's the solution to the defensive woes, Mike. You know, first uh, first in the league in defense against the run. So we had to make a switch because that wasn't enough. I don't know. Maybe because he doesn't seem like a big pass rushing guy. So uh, yeah, the, the, the no. move kind of confuses me as well. Okay, so I think that's all the news that we have as far as that update. And then obviously tomorrow's when the, uh, or this is Wednesday when this is dropping, we're recording on Tuesday night. So we don't have injury reports or anything like that to go over. So let's get into the goodness, the coach's film the stuff that we see with our third eye. Ben, right out of the gate, let's just talk about the first Philadelphia Eagles offensive play because I thought they dialed up a good one. They get Nelly free. He's got the deep safety to his left, the cornerback on his right. What's interesting about this play is that this was the start of Nelson Aguilar's bad day with three drops because, as Doug Peterson said, they were six inches away from making this work. And he's, and he's probably right because it was right off his fingertips. But uh, the Eagles showed something that they would try throughout the game with play action with varying degrees of success. They did a lot of sending Goddard across the formation to, to pick up the end man on the line of scrimmage, having him as a wing. They did some wham stuff with him too. In this case, on the first play, he picks up Brian Arakpo, ends up putting him in the dirt, actually, as Arakpo is desperately grasping for Carson Wentz. As the game went on, it was a little less more uh, less successful because they started keying in on it. But real quick about that play, they dial it up. I thought the placement by Wentz, who was only two for seven on passes over twenty yards in the air, was bad. It was over. It was, it was too far to the corner. If he yeah. hits Nelson in stride on this on his on his natural track, I think it's six. And, and overall, I, I still thought that that. Carson played well and and put some deep balls in some spots. The one to to Allison Jeffrey, we're, we're gonna have to talk about to the left side of the that formation. Was, that was pretty football. The bucket throw under pressure with guys coming at his surgically repaired knee. But yeah, right out of the gate, we miss an opportunity, and that's kind of what this game was about. Uh, no, I'm not gonna put too much of an onus on Carson for that one, simply because number one, uh, it throws 40 yards down the field, and so he could have yeah. been in a better spot, but also. There's actually, if, you, if you're talking about from where Carson launched it, it's closer to 50 yards down the field, 15 to the 35. So that's number one. Uh, number two, the, he was in a, a weird spot because it wasn't clear when Carson released it right. where the most dangerous coverage was going to come. Like So Al, uh, Aguilar is splitting that deep safety and then he, the, the deep corner, uh, you know, kind of a cover three look is coming underneath. And so Carson doesn't really know where to hang that thing because when he's releasing it, they're both peeling back there. So he kind of just puts it up into a spot. I do think Aguilar didn't see it as early as he could have like uh, you thought he had problems tracking it because that that would make it's, sense it's, it's not even like he had problems tracking it. it's like if he had seen it earlier i think it's a catch i don't think right. he got to it super late it just you know it took him a beat to find it which is regular mm. and then it was barely out of his reach whereas if he like found that ball a little bit quicker i think it's very clearly a catch because you you don't see him really open up his stride and adjust his angle until you know like i don't want to say late because it's not really aggie's fault just like you know a, 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 there was more time than he could have maximized on. You know what I mean? So absolutely a missed opportunity. I thought widely Carson had one of 
his best games of recent memory. Yeah. Which Mike, he 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 wasn't practicing eleven on elevens in training camp. Yeah. He wasn't taking preseason <laughs> snaps. I like this. Uh, I know PFF. I'm pretty sure graded it as the second highest game for Carson. Which wow. yeah, like cool. I mean, like I I do not put much stock in that whatsoever, as yeah. listeners know. Yeah. But I I do think there is credence to say that man Carson was. I think you could very comfortably say dealing. Like uh, I, I talked a lot about the rust that I saw against the Colts, and I think the primary thing that I identified uh, when we were talking about that was that he was just a little bit uncertain as to when to when to trigger, when to you know shoot it deep, when to just take the underneath route. Just kind of like that natural feel, that instinct, that comfort inside of the offense. I thought that was very there in spades. You know what I mean? He's just taking what's there. He's hitting his first read consistently, but he's not forcing it all the time. I did complain about that uh, that that final Zach Ertz throw where he forced that one a little bit, but I feel like Carson's yeah. Carson. That that's something we've always seen from Carson when it's like a key third down and he knows where he wants to go. He thinks he can make the throw, so you live with that. I just thought generally overall uh, he was much more fluid and natural and and kind of like symbiotic with the style of the offense if you want to get like you know artistic with it yeah i would say if you bracket those things that that first play where the placement was a little bit off still a good throw though still a spot where nelly can make a play not not terrible like you said and yeah. then that last play with will compton where he was bird dogging zach Ertz, and that cost him the week before will compton could have made a big play there in between that in between all of that is all the Oreo goodness that you want from Carson Wentz. I thought he had a fantastic game. He was dealing over the middle of the field. He was dishing it outside to Alshon Jeffrey, who we'll talk about. And this is all in the face of some serious pressure, some, some of the, the worst pressure that we've seen all year. So against the Eagles, defensive coordinator Dean Pease, who we spent a lot of time talking about and how he'll dial things up, bring blitzes, bring stunts, bring corner, bring cornerbacks, give you different looks, confuse mm-hmm. You pre-snap and bring some heat. 19 of 56 dropbacks, that's 34% by my charting. He brought blitzes, which is a a pretty high amount. And against the blitz, yeah. Against the blitz, 4.57 yards per play for the Eagles with only a 42% Mm -hmm. success rate. There was three sacks that came out of those 19 blitzes. That's pretty profitable if you're DMPs because sacks lead to drive stalling out 85% of the time. So if you can yeah. do that three times in a game with a the blitz, then then you're winning all day. But at, at the same time, they still were still were able to convert against those and throw to some some spots that they had uh, left because of the blitz. And the middle of the field was a big area for the Eagles where they really just dished against this defense. Wesley Woodyard went out early with an injury because Kenny Vaccaro came up on an Ertz catch and, and and popped Woodyard, and I guess he had a concussion or something to that effect. Kenny yeah, Vaccaro yeah. would come out later in the game, the strong safety, with a dislocated elbow that looked absolutely nasty and walked off the field with that. But Ertz over the middle, over and over and over again, was a winning formula for the Eagles. Yeah, no, absolutely. A quick note on that third and 12 to Ertz, where I said, you know, mm. he kind of forced it a little bit. I think if you watch, so Will Compton, like you said, is the man in coverage. Compton was peppering the opposite B gap away from Ertz at the snap, and then he bails what, into yeah. coverage. And I'm relatively certain, watching Ertz run his route, that he doesn't think anybody's underneath him. Because he reads very quickly that the safety is sitting like very comfortably with a lot of cushion on top of him. He he had no threat underneath him at the snap. You know he had no uh, like backer to his side, strong side backer. Yeah. He was keying. So I think he's thinking like, dude, they're sending pressure. This is money. So you see him like geared down a little bit. And when he when he turns, he doesn't turn and like 
uh, you know, break to the outside yeah. like you would on offside routes. He kind of just sits a little bit, and then we realize Compton's there. He, he he gears himself back up. So I'm sure if you like were to ask Zach about it, maybe one of the beats did. I don't know. He would probably put a little bit of that onus on himself. And what's interesting is now that I'm I'm watching that play and I'm watching what's going on pre-snap, which is what I like to do on some of these things in the communication. You can see Will Compton communicating to Jayon Brown and the safety, like, "Hey, that way, push push yourselves that way." I'm gonna, and then like the 55, Jayon Brown goes, "You got right here," and Compton's like, "Yeah, I got you." And that's when he comes out. So that was a really nice disguised coverage they're sugaring they're, they're making things you know ugly for the protection and then you come out like that and you're able to surprise zach Ertz on a on a key third down and 12 if they make that they're scoring they're scoring seven they're not setting selling for a field goal right there I, I would put money on that so yeah big time play there definitely surprised Ertz. let's get into go ahead no yeah so back to the salient point zach Ertz over the middle uh, the and this was something that I think we touched on very nicely. My quick pat on the back, go team, on the pre-shows, which was simply the reality that when you zone blitz, you're discombobulated in your underneath zones quickly. So when your guys are bailing into those underneath zones, they're frantic because they're not you know five yards off the ball getting the into zones catcher. that are eight, ten, twelve yards off the ball. They're zero yards off the ball. Bailing back at 8, 10, 12 yards. They're very easy to move with your eyes at the snap because they feel that pressure to get into their zone. So they're, if, if they're, their heads turn to you, they don't see the, uh, they don't see where you're looking. But if they are looking at you, then they're going to quickly react. You know, it's, it's a very aggressive, frantic style of defense. And so as a result, I mean, people just had, uh, and I had their heads cut off. I, I remember, uh, as a play in the, in the third quarter, it's a 24 yard catch and run to Zach Ertz where uh you know they they they're doing a little a little weak side blitz with a weak side backer and the safety's coming up and it's like a a cover 3 rob and and Carson's just staring down the left side of the field and the safety coming up and the middle hole backer everybody just like drives on Dallas Goddard who's running like the most pedestrian of flat, of flat routes like it's just a very unexciting route and they're just like it's going here and they like <laughs> yeah. lean to it and Zacharts is just behind everybody just nobody's near him Right. And and yeah. I, I forget who the middle backer is. That's Rashawn Evans. That's the rookie. Oh, is that the rookie? Poor fella. So he <laughs> starts like he like realizes stuff's going wrong and Carson's climbing out of the pocket. So he tries to run the other way and he gets turned around and he's just like spinning circles on the field. This is this is the reality of those underneath zones. Right. And I yeah. think that it was a great game uh, to maximize Ertz in the way that they did. I think that that translates really well to Carson and his style of play because he can just beam those footballs in there and he's quite decisive now that he's in a rhythm. So that was a wonderful, positive aspect of the passing game, Mike. And and like you said, uh, we have the Aguilar throw, but I think generally when he was looking deep, and this wasn't Carson's deepest game, but generally when he was looking deep, Carson was pretty well on point. I mean, that Jordan Matthews touchdown was easy money. Like, that's not... That's not big coverage or anything like that but he just he laid that ball right in there you know what i mean like he gave it a little bit of a cushion because uh he had the space so it wasn't like in stride or anything but it was a beautiful ball the the jeffrey throw is one of the best throws we've seen him make like it's a top 10 top 15 throw it's a very high level of difficulty especially with the pressure he dropped that puppy in a bucket uh so carson generally was dealing and i thought the offensive passing concepts were great this goes back to our immediate reaction show where People were complaining about the run-pass balance, and when your passing game is doing that well, I simply don't see why that would be a complaint. We can talk about stuff in the red zone where I think uh, things got a little bit more tentative on the offensive side, and the Titans really ramped up the aggressiveness, uh, which Mm. credit goes to Tennessee in that regard. Yeah, they were aggressive like us, like we are in the red zone, but they, they executed they execute a lot better than us defensively. If you if you flip it, I agree. Yeah. And so between the twenties, 
uh, passing game was was really ripping it. In yeah. the red zone, not so much. And and we gotta, you know, when we talk about all right, why was the red zone offense bad against the Titans? Really, the easiest and most likely answer is that like sometimes the dice don't roll your way, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. the chips don't fall the way you want them to. You know what I mean? Like it's very easy to be like, there's no more Frank Reich and there's no more John D. Filippo and then there's you know no Sproles and, and Clement and you know there's a lot of stuff we can talk about it. And if this is a consistent issue, then we will. But I really think that the most likely explanation is just natural regression. The Eagles are a very good team in the red zone. So sometimes they have to not be, you know, it's just kind of the law of probability. And this was, this was one of those days. Well, remember too, in the red zone, the one that they did score on in the red zone, they, they started out with first and eight, and then you get a fumble from Nelson Aguilar. It goes out of bounds. So you set up with second and 15. There's a holding call on Brandon Brooks. So you got second and 25, second and goal from the 25. You get a quick little little scramble for like what six yards from Wentz, and then it was the touchdown pass to Alshon Jeffrey for 16 yards. So they were still able to to burrow themselves out of certain situations and dig themselves out of a bind. They just yeah. weren't able to do it all the time. They needed more consistent execution in that area. And since we brought up Alshon Jeffrey, eight catches, 105 yards, and a touchdown, I thought he did really well with his releases. He looked. A step Ben is flexing right now. He looked. I'm doing, I'm doing the the flex thing where you slap your arm while you're flexing, which is not nearly <laughs> as impressive when I do it probably. But that's how I feel about Alshon, man. He was he won on all three levels. Had the bubble screen. He was winning on 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 digs and and, and deep out routes. He won against the line against the Dory Jackson to separate against a speedster like Dory Jackson. Dory Jackson. He had to have a strong release, strong inside arm get a step on it, and have a beautiful bucket throw from Wentz, which I have on my timeline if you want to see that. One of the, one of the most beautiful from the end zone angle. That thing is a gem. <laughs> so Alshon Jeffrey, really big performance on the day. He had some battles with Malcolm Butler too where things got a little ugly technique-wise, but he still came away with a W. He's got those pickle jar hands. Dude was balling. We finally got some outside production from our wide receivers. I know we touched on the recap show, but looking at it again from the All-22, seeing the the full development of the routes outside of the broadcast angle just made me appreciate his game. And I'll ask you, Ben, I felt in 2017... He looks quicker? Yes. Yeah. That bench route against Malcolm Butler for the touchdown, Yeah, I played that back a few times. I was like, ooh-hoo-wee! That man's moving! <laughs> Right? I don't know. This looks a little new. I wonder if he's, because he's healthy, he's doing yeah. more conditioning. Well, okay. So it might be more conditioning because I know he had to do like some crazy regimen just to get ready for the games last year. But at the same time, too, if you think about it, like I watched, I, I did his stuff for the, the, did a full eval forum for the Scouting Academy, the offseason that the Eagles had signed him. And, you know, I gave him a certain grade for quickness and separation quickness and all that stuff. And then I watch him with the Eagles and right away I'm thinking, he seems a step slow and he's not dealing with a lower body injury. Like what's, what's going, what am I missing? And I went back and looked at the tape and I compared the two and I'm like, no, he's, he's just, he's a definitely a half a step slow here. And then I watched this game and I'm like, huh. And then I go back two years to the tape and I'm like, oh, that's the same quickness that he had two years ago. He was definitely a half step slow last year. Think about it, Ben. How does a torn rotator cuff impact? Cause you run a lot. If you had a torn yeah. rotator cuff and you were really trying to build up speed. Would that torn rotator cuff hamper you? I'll ask you. I don't know for sure. Right. I know it's not. I know it. I know it's at the very least it's neutral. At the very worst, it's bad. Right. Right. That's true. I would say I would have like two ideas. One, like I have no idea what a rotator cuff does. Let's make that very clear. It rotates something. 
it it might be a cuff like <laughs> i have no idea right <laughs> obviously when you're pumping your arms you're going to be activating your shoulder right and so if that's if there's pain there then that's going to just limit your ability to pump your arms which is part of like generating speed it's part of just keeping cadence the other thing i would think is potentially just foot contact with the ground like hard steps and hard stops like killing your momentum that sends yeah. jolts up your body and so if you've got like a torn ligament anywhere there's a potential for that to be painful. Uh, you know, obviously your shoulder's bearing the weight of your arm. And so when you're coming to those stops, it's kind of feeling that inertia. And there's a lot of technique with your arms in and out of breaks, whether you keep them tight oh, or you, you pump them real quick. Yeah, there's a ton. Yeah. You know, and the other thing that I would say is, uh, you know, this is kind of a, a hot button issue or whatever. Jeffrey was probably very, very medicated when he was playing on this torn rotator cuff. Right. And I don't know if that's, you know, just generally like slowing your body systems. Right. It's like it's just like lowering your sensitivity or whatever. But because he's playing injured, there's a lot going on with him. Right. This is kind of like the general thing we can say. I yeah, I think he looks I would just say I think more explosive is the best way to say. I think when he's when he's dropping his hips and when he's coming out, he just looks very, very sharp. I mean, so we talked about this a little bit uh, when we were discussing how exciting it was to see Goddard in the offense and Goddard was. Not nearly uh, as featured, but he was in the offense for a decent amount of snaps. Uh, very comfortable with that. But we were talking about this. We said once Alshon kind of gets added into this team, into this system, it's really going to uh, it just become very difficult to cover. And the reality of that is demonstrated in these kind of uh, that that touchdown where where Alshon was one of the receivers in a in a three bunch set. And then, or excuse me, uh, the, the long throw, the sideline throw, he was one of the receivers in a three-bunch set. And then mm-hmm. for the touchdown, he was just a receiver to the trip side, right? But now you're pretty much, uh, you're going to put a guy like a Dallas Goddard or a Zacherts on the backside. You're going to force attention to go to him. It's not just a throwaway sort of backside isolated. And then you've got Aguilar, Ertz, slash Goddard, and Jeffrey all to a trip side. That's very, very difficult to deal with, right? And you see that because now you're getting... Uh, Alshon matched up against Malcolm Butler, a good NFL corner in one-on-one situations that he regularly won, right? And so that's how formation plus having the talent to win one-on-one matchups, you know, even when you're not beautifully scheming guys open with incredible route concepts, once you can force a defense into one-on-one situations, having a talent like Alshon Jeffrey versus say like a Jordan Matthews or a Kamar Aiken, it changes the, the, the face of your offense because when you're in a third and four backed up against your own end zone situation, see this, we have a high percentage play whenever we want it. It's that man we're in 17. Well, I'll tell you this, from 12 and 13 personnel and uh, you know having Alshon out there as that, that wide receiver in those situations and, and Goddard as the second tight end and every now and then, very rare, but every now and then there was Josh Perkins. From 12 and 13 personnel, they ran it 40% of the time, 7.97 yards per play, 50% success rate. That's 2.45 yards higher than with 11 personnel and 9% more successful than with 11 personnel. So that 12 and 13 personnel, I know before the game, Doug said that he didn't want to be known as a 13 personnel t- team. That's right. fine. I understand Josh Perkins isn't all that great. Be a 12 personnel team. Be at 40% of the game. Be at 50% of the game. They were 70% against the Colts because they didn't have a guy like Alshon. And they were able to get you know a modicum of, of productivity out of it. But now that Alshon is back, it just enhances it that much more and gives you that much more flexibility. So glad that Alshon is back. We could spend all day on him. But I know what people are going to want to hear about are some of the protection issues that we had, and they started early. And the first crack in the dam was Jarrell Casey 
singled up against Steve Wisniewski, Stephen Wisniewski. And I think I mentioned that in the preview show that if I would get Casey on on Wiz if yeah. I were Dean Pease. That would be my goal if I'm a defensive coordinator. But that's obvious. That's money all day just because Casey is a force that is widely underrated by the national media. So he gets a run stop on first down by beating Lane Johnson inside, so does Casey. Then he beats Wiz Solo. Then on third and nine, and this is where the real problem started for me, Dean P sends a delayed linebacker blitz. Jason Kelsey is late to pick it up. Jayon Brown comes free up the middle and shuts the drive down. So far, as as many things as positive things that we saw from this offense, and there were a ton of bright spots that we talked about, setbacks too close to each other, derailing drives, and advantageous situations plagued this team throughout the game. And a lot of it came up from picking up blitzes, from picking up stunts and in that piece throughout them. And again, 34% blitz. He was aggressive. And I said we needed to make them pay when they blitzed. And when I charted it, it was up and down. It was a mixed bag. We didn't make them pay enough. And we got hurt by it too much. So, and, and he, look, even when they weren't blitzing, the, the Harold Landry sack, Ben, have you ever, and John Ledyard from, from TDN, the draft network, your, your buddy there, your cohort, John Ledyard asked me, have you ever seen Lane Johnson beat like Harold Landry beat Lane Johnson? I could not yes. think of an example. I think of one time and it was when, when the Eagles played the Broncos a few years ago and it was Vaughn Miller. That's what I tweeted out at, at the play <laughs> when they replayed it. I said, I have not seen Lane beat like that since I think Vaughn did it in like 2015 or something, right? <laughs> Where Vaughn like absolutely smoked him. You know what I mean? He was like yeah. a young player. And Vaughn just like put him like, not even put him in a blender, just blew it right by him. Listen, the thing about Landry and that rush rep, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm nervous and I'm apprehensive about doing this, but I'm going to do it. The thing about Landry, that rush rep, and Derek Barnett is this. <laughs> <laughs> because there was a while, there was a while we thought Landry was going to come out in the Derek Barnett class, right? Uh, Landry, right. in his junior season, put up like 18 and a half sacks or something bonkers. Only received a day two grade from the uh, the committee. So he went back to school and then obviously also still got drafted on day two. He dealt with a lot of injuries his senior year, whatever. I think we're going the same place with this. My God. <laughs> there was a while that Landry and Barnett were going to come out in that same class. And it was a big conversation because they were kind of conceived of as the edge threes behind Miles Garrett and Solomon Thomas, if you characterized him as such. Okay, so mm. I was much in the Landry over Barnett uh, camp. And the reason because what you saw Landry do to Lane Johnson, where he didn't even use his hands, right? Which is like, yeah. you're supposed to, and he didn't because Landry <laughs> needs to learn how to do that. But where Landry just got directly into Lane's cylinder, like right into his gut, very quickly off the snap. And then just made Lane whiff on the punch by dipping his shoulder down low to the ground right when Lane was going to fire. We like to talk about Barnett learning and growing, and he will, but you can't teach that. That that inherent timing and the ability to uh, just bend your body at a ridiculous angle and maintain momentum, it's natural. It's instinctive. You can hone it over practice. You can, you know, you can really work on it when you have it, but you can't just like acquire it. You know what I mean? It's kind of a, a, you either do or you don't have it sort of a situation. And that's something that Barnett has never really had. We see Barnett make incredible displays of flexibility. We've seen him in the run, in the run game, but that timing and that maintenance of momentum to come around the corner and dip your shoulders that that, that throw just misses. We That's really rare. just We just don't see that on Barnett's tape nearly. To the degree well, that we saw it on Landry's tape, who do you who do you see it from? I mean, short list, I, the, five, maybe five, six players. I, so I would say, like of the guys recently, you saw it from Landry. 
you didn't even really see it from Miles Garrett because Garrett was just a bully, right? Like Garrett yeah, can bend and he dip. Use his hands, right? Whatever. I will say, I think a guy who you could say has it, but it's super inconsistent, needs to hone it, was Tack McKinley out of UCLA, who also came Correct. out in that Derek Barnett class. And mm-hmm. then if I put my mind all the way back to 2016, and I burn a little time at bringing up my 2016 big board so that I have something to go off of, and it turns out it's not in my bookmarks like I thought it was. Okay. <laughs> Man, I can't really think of anything in that 2016 class. Yeah, so it's rare. Let's, but I think that's pretty good, uh, pretty good, uh, yeah. pretty good evidence. But anyway, this is kind of uh, a... Um, uh, a tangent if we were to bring it back home yeah simply when we talk about blitzing 34 percent of the time you really got to emphasize like that's a third of the time that's as if like every third down he blitzed like every single one you know and obviously mm-hmm. he switched up the downs and everything but it's simply to say that's that's incredible freedom to send those and the main issue that i i saw just at the end of the day like jason peters got beat a couple times and again i think yeah. that's something that uh, you're more concerned about if you see it over a couple game stretch than if you see it just once. You know, it doesn't worry me that much. I think that, uh, yeah, like uh, there was a miscommunication between Kelsey and Wiz that was kind of a problem. Okay. The main issue was that there was not a running back that could be trusted to pick up protection in the backfield. And you just Smallwood like... Smallwood couldn't do it, yeah. Right. It was when they were asked to, Smallwood and Ajayi both couldn't pull it off. And they were also just not asked to do it that frequently because I think the coaching staff knew that that was just a lost cause. And you yep. just didn't have that. When you're dealing with stunting and twisting pressure like that, you really want to have that back because you don't know what gap the pressure is going to be coming from. It's hard to slide your protections because they fool you by overloading one side and then coming from the other, so on and so forth. So you really need that back who can get from B-gap to B-gap, you know, who can, who can, who can has that versatility for you. And, and it simply wasn't there. And that's something that Philadelphia should be uh, privy to. And it really just, it kind of, to me, increases the value of Darren Sproles and Corey Clement. Darren Sproles, pass blocks well for his size. Corey Clement is, is a solid pass blocker, and he's really the back you would have loved to have seen healthy. So, so special thing that we're doing here on Bleeding Green Nation, so we don't have to dwell on this offensive line, but we can still uh, address it in full, is I'm going to be talking with three-time Pro Bowler and longtime Philadelphia Eagle left tackle Trey Thomas for Big a fireside Trey. chat. Big ups to Trey for doing this. I'm going to be talking with him on Thursday, so that might be up around Friday. But we are going to be talking about this game and, and in general, some offensive line play, some things that we saw. Uh, shout out to Trey for for reaching out and wanted to do that with us. So that's gonna, dude. I'm so excited for that. We're gonna we're gonna get into all the nerdy details about offensive line play, and it's gonna be amazing. He's a big time, big time fan of him him growing up. So that's gonna be awesome. Very excited to do that. Let's flip it to the defensive side since we spent oh before we do that, one one more play. Shout out Jordan Matthews. I understand it was a it was a it was a dial up and it was against quarters coverage and Vaccaro, you know, went to the deep out and Butler was expecting help and that that's all great. You went out there, you made a play, you scored a touchdown. Welcome to the fam. Uh he did get caught. I don't know if you saw this, Ben. He got caught by the fly eggles fly hashtag. Oh yeah, no, I already I used I swooped right in there. <laughs> Just like, Eagle, Eagles, Eagles takes another victim. Listen, I can't stretch this enough, gentle listeners. When you put in hashtag F-L-Y-E, the first hashtag that comes up is, is wrong. Eagles. The L and the E are switched because so many people have made this typo that it now just like Twitter defaults to it, which is, yeah. by the way, wild. And someone Concerning. should do it. Someone should do like a his, histor- uh, documentary on that because I think that's insane. Um, yeah. But just double check. If the little eagle emoji doesn't come up, 
It is spelt incorrectly. Don't be like every equals athlete, which is awful, uh, and, and spell it wrong. Otherwise, I will expose you, and it'll be pretty funny. So that's it for the offense. Had to end on that funny note. Going to the defense here. We'll try to we'll try to fit this in with the with the time that we have left here. But oh wow, dude, we talked way too much. Oh, we do. Yeah, we do. We just love it so much, Ben. But one of the things that we love is trying out guessing games and seeing if we can bet on certain things. And one of the things that you asked me, and you you want to let the gentle listeners know what you asked me to chart. I'll make you do the work since you made me do the work. (laughs) Well, yeah, because I was like, man, this would be really interesting to chart. And I was like, I should chart. And then I also had my first day of classes today for my senior year. So I was like, you know who actually should chart it is good old full-time Mike. But anyway, I said, yo, Mike, I think... I might have said I bet, which wasn't a good choice, that over 50% of the time, the Eagles' deepest defender at the moment of the throw was a corner, illustrating how little faith the Eagles had in their safeties to play, you know, deep down the field. As it turns out, Mike, are we Hmm. revealing the answer? Yeah. So Ben said that it was over 50% deepest defender was a cornerback, and I and I I specified by outside corner, it was never nickel, so I wasn't worried about that anyway. But deepest player was a cornerback at the time of the throw, and I even included sacks for you, Ben. Scrambles, there was was nothing there for you. It would have just watered down your number. number. 46 dropbacks, 23 out of 46 exact times the cornerback, the outside cornerback, either Mills or Darby, were the deepest person on the defense showcasing, like you said, the lack of faith, the weird game plan that we come out with Corey Graham as a robber defender that got burnt several times. We asked for inverted cover two, more of that with Rodney McLeod. We did not want it 20 times this game with Corey Graham and Jalen Mills with Ronald Darby playing half half field deep. And I and I understand, okay, at first I was like, oh, they're just they're just testing Mariota, because we talked about we talked about that early. Test him, dare him, see if he can make the throws. Because as Blake Bedingfield said, that the former Titans, Tennessee Titans college scouting director said, when he watched Mariota last week, he couldn't make the deep out. He couldn't make the deep corner throw because the bottom two fingers of his throwing hand were numb. Okay, well that's fine. Is he healthy or not? Let's dare him to make that throw. First, you know, first big throw. He comes out and he and he puts one out there, and you're like, oh. He's got the juice, so maybe we'll come off of that. We did not. It was so much inverted coverage. Like, you could compile all the plays from the rest of the NFL from this season, and I feel like we ran inverted cover two or had our corners as the only two deep responsibilities more than any other team. Like, it was wild to me how much they do it, and Mills and Darby aren't used to that. They're not accustomed to that. So, yeah, they failed a little bit, and they're going to get trashed for it, but who does that? I... Don't know. And this is what it simply boils down to. We don't really know. Here, We'll start with the first thing we don't know. We don't know why a team would retain as their third safety a player who they do not trust in pretty much every role safety plays. We don't know that. We don't know why you would keep Corey Graham when you clearly don't trust Corey Graham to do safety things. So, he was playing at the line of scrimmage. You could have put Camus Grugier Hill in there. He would have done a better job. It's, it, it's insane. Listen. Everything we need to talk about with Corey Graham in one story. On the final play of the game, Corey Graham is lined up over Corey Davis, who will eventually receive the game-winning touchdown. Mm-hmm. And Avante Maddox is capping him, so he's directly uh, like lined up at the same latitude, right, in the straight line behind Corey blitz. Graham. Yeah, 
about eight yards off. Mm-hmm. Corey Graham eventually, right before the snap, peels off of Corey Davis, who's in the slot, to go to like you know the outside and man line of scrimmage, and he's it's a nickel blitz, and Avante Maddox is in coverage. So between Avante, him. between Avante Maddox, that was that's my punchline, Mike. You <laughs> my punchline. You have a fourth round rookie corner playing against the fifth overall pick from 2017, or Corey Graham, the vested veteran who has corner experience, I'm pretty sure, who, who's been on their team for multiple years, and one of them had to blitz. And the other had to play coverage on Corey Davis, who'd been killing the Eagles all game. And they chose Corey Graham to blitz, which is what mm. you do when you have liabilities, Mike. You blitz your liabilities. That is that is defensive coordinator, like, 201. And you're not bringing him because he's a fantastic blitzer. You're bringing him because you're bringing six, and you're just throwing yeah. bodies at it. This is not, right. oh, Corey Graham is a fantastic blitzer. We need yeah. to send him on. He's not Derwin this is, freaking This isn't Derwin, exactly. It's not Derwin <laughs> James nonsense. It's not Taylor Rapp. <laughs> This is and and they leave Avante Maddox in off coverage, so Avante Maddox has to deal with a two way go at the, at the at the goal line against, against Corey, Corey Davis. Davis. Like that yeah. right there is just the story for how this coaching staff trusts Corey Graham, in my opinion. So we don't know that. Number two, we don't know why Jalen Mills and Ronald Darby seemed so unprepared for a coverage that they have played before successfully at all. You we're, we've been calling it inverted cover two. Fran Duffy's calling it a cover three robber. I'm calling it a Tampa two robber because it's basically Tampa two. This is what I've yeah. landed on. In Tampa two coverage, the coverage popularized by the Bears and Brian Erlacher. You're playing basically like cover two, you know, in quotation marks, but really that middle hole defender is flying down the middle of the field. He's going super deep. So it basically becomes three deep coverage and Tampa two coverage. It was Tampa Bay, uh, John Gruden and Tony Dungy. This is where it's kind of popular. And Brian Erlacher is like the last middle linebacker who could really pull it off. And that then the coverage died for a reason. Uh, and now the Eagles have brought it back, but it, we call it Tampa 2 Robber because instead of the middle linebacker dropping back, the deep safety is coming forward as a robber, it's cover 3 robber, Tampa 2 robber, whatever. Okay. Sounds a lot like cover 2 inverted, but go ahead. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, like, <laughs> they're just words, but we, yeah, yeah, you know what we're talking right. about. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, I think, like, you know, when we talk about inverted cover 2, you would assume that that deep safety is coming all the way into the middle hole instead of yeah. staying a little bit further back, which. Uh, I have a post by the time this drops on Bleeding Green Nation that breaks down literally all of this. So go oh, ahead and dope. read that uh, and 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 love it and share it with your friends and make fun of them because they're dumb and you're smart. Okay. And the third thing we don't know, Mike, is how the loss of Rodney McLeod led to mass hysteria and confusion dealing with tight sets, tight splits, yeah. and bunch oh sets. God. And rub routes not, and... and- right. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know we had uh, there was Nigel Bradham and Jalen Mills both go out to cover a, a running back swing to the flat, which is generally conceived of as the third responsibility and the least dangerous of three routes. When you got two receivers tight to line of scrimmage and then a running back releases to the flat, that's your third priority. That ball is getting thrown two yards behind the line of scrimmage. You know, like and the running back ended up wheeling up the field, so good that they were there. But there were two of them. And Corey Davis was wide open in the middle of the field. There was the one that you showed against a bunch set with Sydney and with Malcolm, where I, I think watching it, Sydney was in the wrong, but it's very difficult to tell who is following yeah. the incorrect rules. It's it's very it's what what happened was Sydney's got the point, man. Mills is on the outside. They're staggered, and then there's motion. Corey Graham comes over. The communication has already happened. No one communicates anything different, so it's looking like it's supposed to be a switch between Mills and Sydney. But then Corey Graham was like doing his own thing, covering his own man. It's a bunch. It did those rules, whatever right. you were doing, Corey Graham needs to be different than what that was. It was so confusing. 
Off of what? Like, so the difficult thing with figuring out what rules are being employed on a bunch set is the rules for who covers who changes based off the releases, right? Yeah. So to me, watching how the eventual releases occurred, like in physical space, Jalen Mills and Corey Graham looked like they were in pure man coverage, whereas Sidney Jones went the wrong way, right? Yeah. He did not take the point man when the point man went running. Now, if you're running pure man coverage against a bunch, that's kind of confusing. Like, I, that's that's uh, uh, that would surprise me. Uh, it's not what you typically do. If there were rules for who gets who when they release, we don't really know because the coverage was failed. So I have no idea who's at fault there. That's something no, that no, you know, it was bad. Even if, even if they're playing pure man coverage like like Corey Graham was apparently, you're playing pure man coverage against bunch, and you got to run through two guys or three guys potentially through through traffic to get to your man. It just none of it made any sense, dude. And and just the all, confusion all throughout. And we've had issues before with pre snap communication, even with McLeod in there, and it was starting to get cleaned up. And now that he's not there. It just seems so much worse. And then the final point, which those are three like I don't knows, right? And the, the final point is simply this. There have been games where the Eagles have given up 10 total points where the secondary was probably just as bad. Yeah. But the front True. four was getting home constantly. And that's like like if you're an offense and you're facing the Eagle defense, we said like, all right, got to target Jalen Mills. The other big thing you're probably talking about is, yo, if they can get pressure with four, we're going to lose. Right, if they can bring four and they can consistently generate because they get pressure so quickly and they have so many different bodies on that line, we're screwed. You know, it's game. Uh, so the defense is a unit. Like the the secondary is going to mess up coverages in every game from now until Kingdom Come. That's what secondaries do. The, the receivers going to drop balls in every day from Kingdom Come. Offensive linemen are going to mess up blocking assignments and protection. It's just this is welcome to the NFL. We make mistakes. The hope is that you know the the real strength of this defense, the defensive line. We'll be able, they didn't play badly, but they'll be able to pick things up a little bit. Like, I know the pressure rate was incredibly high uh, for the Eagles, but in terms of generating sacks and, and taking away, you know, maybe that quick first read, if the if the uh, pressure gets home a little bit earlier, then, you know, like, this problem gets hidden. So, it's like Doug said, you know, six inches away. The narrative after this game would be so much different if a very rudimentary 4th and 15 goes the way that you expect it to. Right. And so we're kind of talking about things in this light of this loss and there are these problems and it's easy to panic because we're not used to being in this situation because we just won a Super Bowl. Everything is fine uh, and things will be better tomorrow. Yeah. And with the pressure rates being high, and I saw that too, and I was like, it just didn't. And a lot of times to go back and look at it and say, look, the pressure wasn't as bad as we thought it was this percent and the film matches. The film the film didn't match for me. And, and two of those pressures coming from Jordan Hicks on nine rushes, on rushes, that's fine. Michael Bennett was the only one with a decent output. Uh, Haloti Nada had a decent day, but we were not getting home with the normal guys that we get home with um, as consistently. So I don't necessarily buy that 42% pressure rate. And, and it's weird because PFF puts it at like, you know, they're within a yard of the quarterback by the time they throw it or, or within the rep or whatever the case may be, which can be extremely subjective. So, of course, we have to go and check the film. It wasn't as bumping as it, as it has been in the past, obviously, that's might just be another issue with the uh, with the home and uh, and the road splits. We'll, we'll see how that pans out. But yeah, I, I feel like those issues definitely get exasperated when we don't get the typical buzzsaw pass rush that we are used to with the Eagles. I don't feel that we got it against the Titans, Ben. The issues get exasperated or exaggerated? Exacerbated. Uh, what, ex- exacerbated what? also works. There we go. Exasperated, exasperated of the three definitely does not. Okay, well, I'll take the third one that was said. Exacerbated. That's what Exacerbated. I meant. Exacerbated. Exacerbated. Yeah. See. Yeah. Every show now. Every show. Do you know on the other show, Ben, corrections and omissions real quick. I said Chicago Bears or Chicago Browns. I screwed it up. I said Chicago Browns about DeAndre Hall. 
Man, I didn't get. I didn't. Uh, I would have made fun of that one too, and I would have said Civ again. It's every show. Some, I gotta. I gotta pay more attention when you talk. Usually, I just kind of ignore you. <laughs> you really don't. Neither do you, gentle listener. Uh, ben, I think that does it for this all twenty-two a film review. Unless you have anything else, if you don't, say it and then say, say goodbye to the gentle listeners because uh, I'm taking too many L's lately, and uh, yeah, I need. I need to. I need to get my head right. I need to do something to get my head right. I'm assuming it involves some alcoholic beverages. This is my last film review uh, point. Are you ready? Mm. I think. Malcolm Jenkins is awesome. Well, I know that for a fact. I think. I'm not positive. I'm going to check again. I think Jake Elliott has slightly changed the way he kicks short field goals and extra points from 2017. You know who you should get in contact with to check that? Who? Chuck Zada from inside the pylon from, oh is he inside the pylon i thought he's pff he might be pff now but he was doing okay. inside the pylon stuff before he, he would definitely he'd be all in for that conversation he would give you 30 minutes of his time breaking down his mechanics and the how and the why yeah i think he may have i was just watching i wanted to see his field goals because jake went three for three on short field goals which is never a sentence i thought i would Shocking. say uh and so <laughs> i want to check it out and then i went back to 2017 and i was like i think he changed his approach a little bit but anyway i'll head up chuck uh yeah so that's your kicking note for the year probably uh thank yeah. you so much for listening to uh the kiss and Solak show here speaking on to the mic ben Radio. oh my am, am i away from the mic thank you that's for that listening to the kiss you're getting thank you for listening to the kiss and Solak show here on bg and radio we do appreciate you coming by uh as always i've been benjamin Solak on twitter at benjamin Solak. that's s-o-l-a-k he's been michael kissed on twitter at michael kissed nfl that's k-i-s-t this was the All-22 review of the Tennessee Titans film. It is the last podcast we will be talking about the Titans. Of course, coming to you tomorrow, that's Thursday, uh, will be the Eagles defense against the Minnesota Vikings offense. Yeah, let's do it. Is, do we usually do Eagles defense first? Or I can't remember. We did it last time. We switched it up. But that was what I was prepared for at the time. So I was totally fine with it. Um, so, yeah, we can do uh I feel like I want to watch. I want to watch the DeFilippo offense there in Minnesota. See what it looks like. You want to flip it. You want to flip it around. Then you want to DeFilip it around. I just. That's what I said. I said the Eagles defense against the Vikings offense. Oh, then you don't want to DeFilip it. <laughs> I want to watch. <laughs> I want to watch DeFilippo in Minnesota. That's what we're then, watching. That's what we're doing then. The end. Decided. <laughs> I make executive decisions here. I I control the podcast. Yeah, that's what goes on. Yes. Okay. So rate and review us because we're good at this. Uh, so say good things about <laughs> us because we're great. Uh, we do an awesome job and you learn a lot. <laughs> uh, Every show. Eagles, Every show. Eagles defense, Eagles defense yeah. on Thursday. Eagles offense yeah. on Friday. Uh, and then the uh, Gowton and Stolness show. Well, then. Uh, BGN Radio. What's that? BGN Radio. Yes, BGN Radio. They don't have a show that's called The Show. Only we have a show called The Show because we're narcissist buttholes that need our names in it. We wanted to get our names in it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so they'll talk to you guys the way. The schedule's pretty much the same. I don't need to break this down for you guys anymore. Listen to the stuff we say. (laughs) Read the stuff we write online. Rate and comment and follow us because that helps us do a good job. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah, that messes with the Altoons. The Altoons. The (laughs) Altoids. It's been a long day for both of Dude, us, man. I know, man. Family in town. I uh, pff, Wow. Okay. In my office. Look, guys, at the end of the day, going to hit this transition real hard. I don't I care. Very we smooth. all we got, <laughs> we all we need, fly, Eagles, fly. I'm so excited to end this recording. Oh, my God. I know. Jeez, dude. I had to get the, the Pickle Rick stress ball thing going. 
Hello, I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? And why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find us anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.